0: OK, I want to uh, play just a little bit of game, a game with you uh, to get into this. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to measure, two, I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to mention two different kinds of measurements. And you're going to tell me which one is greater and which, which one is greater than the other. OK, which one's bigger. Here, here, here's an example. I'm not explaining this very well, so I'll just do it. So inches, feet. Which is bigger? Feet? Feet. Anybody say inches? OK, inches. OK, okay. so you got it? OK, here's two more. Pounds or ounces, which is greater? Okay, very good. Um, Cut a little bit harder. Cups or pints? Oh, good. You're quick. All right. This might be a little. Meters or yards? Oh. oh. Okay. So how many say meters? How many say yards? Meters actually just a little bit longer, a few inches. Okay. okay here's one. Megabytes or gigabytes? How many say gigabytes? How many say megabytes? How many say I don't know which bytes? Okay. Right. Right. Okay, here's one more. Jesus or God? God. Mm. Equal. Equal. Correct answer right there. Good. Way to go, Tommy. (laughs) This is a tough one, right? But Jesus is really neither less than or greater than God. We believe Jesus is equal to God because he is God. We often call Jesus God's son, but that does not mean that he is less than God the Father or less than the Holy Spirit. He is equal with God in every way. But coming to this understanding is not always easy for a lot of people. Some consider Jesus, and they look at him, they consider his life, and they conclude that he was a very, very good man, but just a man. Or they conclude that he was a very great teacher and a a good example of how to live one's life and how to love. And that he was in fact the source of love, a great source of love, but in fact not necessarily God. Many who have written off the church is irrelevant, saying the church is out of touch and I disagree, that still somehow are attracted to Jesus and ascribe some value to Jesus. There's something special about him. Over the past 2,000 years, billions of people have reached the conclusion that there is something very, very special about Jesus, that he was no ordinary man, that he is in fact God. So we're going to look a little bit how they and many of us have come to that conclusion and look at what some of the evidence is. The first evidence we find in prophecy, a lot of the Old Testament prophecies speak of one to come. When you read Psalm uh, 2, we're not going to read it now, but you can write that down and look at it later. When we read Psalm 2, it speaks of an eternal king who will come and reign forever. And when you read the prophet Isaiah, especially when you get to Isaiah chapter 53, written hundreds of years, 700 years before Jesus, it predicts this one who will come, who will suffer and die and forgive our sins. It's very specific, the prophecies. But perhaps most compelling, the things that help us convince us the most are the teachings and the claims of Jesus himself. We just heard a, a, a reading of a story. And, some, and, and kids, you've got in your bag, you've got this story about the, uh, the, the, the four friends that dropped their, their friend down through the roof so that Jesus can heal them. It's very clever that they've got in their bags. In fact, if there's any bags left later, some of you adults might want to check this thing out. <laughs> they've got this little thing with four little pe- You got it all figured out? You guys? Okay, well, you're working on it. Anyway, it tells us this, this story. And in this story, um, uh, these friends dropped their friend down to, into a crowded room so that Jesus could heal him, uh, which he did, and, he, and it amazed everyone that he could heal. But what Jesus said—what Jesus said—is what really amazed them. It amazed most of the people in the room, and it really annoyed a few of the people in the room. Okay, and the people it annoyed were the teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders. Jesus simply said when they dropped this guy down, instead of, why did you do that to the roof? He didn't say that. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Not you're healed, get up and go. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And so this is what really annoyed the critics because they are thinking, Mark writes that they were thinking, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming, who can forgive sins but God alone? And then it says Jesus knew what they were thinking and he says, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he tells the man to get up and go home. He did, and they were amazed. You see, this is not just a story of a healing. This is not just Jesus being a nice guy and saying, gosh, I really feel bad for this guy and his friend's done all this work to drop him down. I guess I'll heal him. He did heal him, but Jesus is making a bold and a powerful statement to all the people there. He is saying to everyone present, I am God. In so many words, he's saying, I am God. This was big. The reason this amazed people and the reason that leaders were so annoyed by this, that even in Jewish theology, which believed a Messiah would come, their beliefs about the Messiah were not necessarily that he would be able to forgive sins, that only God forgives sins. So this forgiveness of sins was clearly a claim of Jesus to deity. I am God, which is why these leaders freaked out. Jesus also uses a name for himself here that he uses a lot. He calls himself the son of man, not the son of God. But he calls himself the son of man, which doesn't sound very godly does it? Like most of us who are male are sons of men, right? I mean, that's kind of like, what's the big deal with that? But it's a title he used of himself, uh, and, he, and he used it so often. He used it 81 times in the four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. 81 times Jesus calls himself the son of man, and he is the only one to use that term for him. Nobody else calls him the son of man. It comes actually from the Old Testament prophet Daniel, when chapter 7 of Daniel, the son of man is pictured as a heavenly figure who, who in the end times uh, will, will be entrusted by God and given, by God, given great authority by God, given great power and sovereign power over all things. And so this image of this one who would come, the son of man, as Daniel called him in his prophecy, this became a very common title to be used for the Messiah who was to come. In the eighth chapter of Mark's gospel, just after Peter declares that he believes, uh, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they give a bunch of answers. And who do you say that I am? And Peter says, "You you are the Messiah. You are Christ the Messiah. Right after Peter says that, Mark says of Jesus, this he says he then Jesus then began to teach them that the son of man that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after 3 days rise again and here is the next piece of evidence in answer to our question not only the claims of Christ but the resurrection Jesus said, the son of man will be killed and after three days he will rise again. And so then this resurrection then becomes this uh, powerful piece of evidence. The resurrection, Jesus predicted it. He said, I will rise from the dead. And all four gospels tell us in very different ways with differing perspectives and different eyewitnesses. But they all say that the tomb was empty and that Jesus had written. It's hard, And then the Apostle Paul later in his letter to the Corinthians says that over 500 people saw him at one time or another in those 40 days after he rose from the dead. It's hard to build a case that they were all just wishful thinking, or hard to build a case that they were all hallucinating, or that they made it up and they all agreed to the same lie, which points to the next piece of evidence, and that is history. History has pointed to Christ as God. Thomas Aquinas was a great theologian way back in the 13th century, and he said this. He said it in a different language. We've got it, fortunately, in English. He says this: If the incarnation did not really happen, that means Jesus becoming a uh, God, becoming uh, uh, a man in Jesus, and still being fully God. If the incarnation did not really happen, then an even more unbelievable miracle happened. Here's the unbelievable miracle happen. If the incarnation did in happen. The conversion of the world by the biggest lie in history and the moral transformation of lives into unselfishness, detachment from worldly pleasures, and radically new heights of holiness by a mere myth. Conversion by a mere myth would be the miracle. And so there's part of this historical evidence is changed lives. Changed lives, transformed cultures by the power of the gospel and benevolent institutions that have developed over the centuries. Universities, hospitals, homes for the aged, orphanages, more of those started by Christians than any other kind of movement over the centuries and around the world. And ongoing ministries of compassion and care and justice. All of these moving forward in the name of Jesus and making a huge difference in the world and in cultures. So through history we see this happen. But still, it could be asked, couldn't that all still be inspired and motivated by a man? Maybe a really extraordinary man, to be sure, but just a man that, who we decide is a good teacher, a prophet, a wise man, or a deeply loving person. I mean, couldn't all of these things happen still based on the teachings of a, of a good man and a kind man and a loving man? Well, actually, that option is not open to us. <laughs> that option is not open to us if we believe the claims that Jesus made. Now, I said this last week that every week in this series, it seems like I quote from C.S. Lewis. I'm going five for five because this is one of his best. And you may have heard this one before. Lewis said, "I'm." he says, I'm, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And that is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And Lewis then says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, here's my favorite part of the quote, on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg. Any of you poached eggs? Okay, good. He would either be a lunatic on the level of, with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher he has not left that open to us he did not intend to now it seems to be obvious that he was either a lunatic he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem i have to accept the view that he was and is god he said he was god and the option of good man, wise teacher, prophet alone is not open to us. And to all of this then, the, the prophecy, the things we read in the Old Testament, the claims of Jesus, the, the, the resurrection, the uh, some of the historical uh, realities around the resurrection and backup that happened, the impact on the world since then in history, to all of this I would add the same note that I've been adding every single week in this series, and that is... Experience, (laughs) our experience. Experience in a relationship with Jesus, the Son of God. An experience where we live in this relationship, we don't just claim belief, we don't just have in our head the right answers, but we actually have this living, breathing relationship where we spend time listening to Jesus, either through the word, or I shouldn't say either, through the word as well as in prayer as well as through other people around us sometimes. We spend time listening. We spend time learning. We spend time meditating on the word, getting to know it better and understanding the nature of God and who Jesus is. But we listen for his call on our life in the midst of that. We experience him in following him by obeying the things that he calls us to do. We experience the life of Jesus in our community as well. Sometimes we take this as just a me thing, just me and Jesus, our relationship. We, we do this together. We did it we're doing it together now. We did it together when we were running around the room connecting people and praying for kids. Why would we pray for kids if we didn't have a relationship with Jesus? Just that we say these words, we're praying for kids because we love these kids and we want them to experience a life-changing walk with Christ. Right? And when that experience happens in our life, then we come to understand these things. We understand and experience the power of grace. We don't eventually live a perfect life, but we live a life that has grace and forgiveness intervening in it that gives us life and hope and helps us keep going and gives us strength and encourages us to move forward. We experience that in a relationship with Jesus, the the healing of hearts and the healing of relationships, sometimes things that only God can do as we let go of things and we trust God with things to forgive and let go of, and then we receive hope in a relationship. We find the empowerment to do things that we never thought we could do on our own as we live into that relationship with Jesus. And I would tell you, as your pastor, that the, that's the thing that keeps coming to me in these weeks in this series as in terms of its impact on my own life is, Lord, am I really, am I really living into this? Or am I just talking about what I believe, but am I really interacting with you, time with you, listening to, to, you, to you through the word, asking you to impact these li- parts of my life that still need your power to, to change and to transform and to bend towards your will. And so I want to invite you uh, to, to, to join me on that journey if you're not already there, to not only believe the evidence and take into consideration, but to trust God's word as we live into this relationship with him and live the life that he has called us to live. So this sermon could have been real short. It could have just been, yes. But I wanted to say a little bit more to help us understand not only the evidence, but to drive us closer to Jesus himself. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We love to be in your presence. We love to be with our sisters and our brothers in Christ and to celebrate these truths together and to celebrate your reality together, to celebrate your presence together. We thank you that you came to save us. We thank you that you came to give us new life. We thank you that you came to give us purpose for our life and our existence now to partner with you in addressing the needs of this world and the broken places with you that we might bring the healing power and the hope that you bring, Lord Jesus. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.